that runs a little bit deeper than what you can just encounter on a human level. And that's the way it ought to be when the people of God meet. We ought to be able to sense uh, His presence and His Spirit. And I hope you have been greeted by Him this day as well as by our folk. I know you have your Bibles with you, so find your place with me in John's Gospel, chapter number 9. John's Gospel, chapter number 9. For the past several weeks, we have been on an endeavor to look at the seven signs around which John orders or arranges his gospel. Uh, a lot of folk uh, did not know that that was John's methodology, but it is. You know, John has an affinity for the number seven throughout his gospel and in the book of Revelation. It seems to just be uh, his pattern, uh, maybe more than his pattern, but uh, maybe a pattern of the Spirit as he was under the inspiration of the Spirit. So John records for us seven miraculous signs, and we have said about these signs that a spiritual sign is, is just much like a physical sign. It points to something greater than itself. A sign is kind of the shadow, and it points to the substance of, of, um, of, of the message. Just as when you're driving down the road and you see a sign for a restaurant, that sign doesn't satisfy you. The sign points you to the place where you can be satisfied. And that's a good word for us, because many times, let's just be honest, I mean, we are fallen creatures, and we seem to put the focus on the wrong thing. Uh, Jesus even said, why are so many of you seeking after a miraculous sign? You know, there are a lot of people today that do that. They're looking for something miraculous, uh, looking for something that will give them the warm and fuzzies. Uh, and, and we as well, you know, uh, sometimes we are more uh, looking for what Jesus can do for us because He is a miracle worker than we are just looking for Him. And faith always seeks Christ for who He is rather than what He can do. So we want to look at these signs and allow our faith to be focused a little bit in light of seeing some of these signs that point to the identity of Jesus Christ as the God-man. So here we go, John chapter 9. By the way, pop quiz, pop quiz, pop quiz. If you were in a New Testament 101 class, you would be required to list the seven signs around which John orders his gospel. We have looked at six of them. Today is the sixth in John chapter 9. There's one more left because there are seven. How many of you know what the seventh one is already? Raise your hand. Woo! I like this kind of class. I like it when I can get folk with a pop quiz and everybody makes a zero. Woo! Just something about that. Now, you know it already. You just maybe didn't know it was a sign. Next Sunday, we'll look at the seventh and final, and that is the miraculous sign of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. All right, so now you know. John chapter 9, here we go. Follow along with me as I read in verse number 1. It says, He, that is Jesus, passed by. He saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, It's neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to, the, to his eyes. 
And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Now let me put it on pause right here for a little while because there is a great contrast between this blind man in John chapter 9 as opposed to the lame man in John chapter 5. You see, the lame man in John chapter 5 was just a sorry, grouchy, uh, cantankerous old goat. But this guy here in John chapter 9 is different. You will see his personality come through in the exchange, in the interrogation with the Pharisees. And this is one of the most humorous passages recorded in John's gospel. I'll know if you get it or not by the sound of chuckles that come from the crowd as we read through this. But just notice, and I think John puts it in there, it is intended to give us a little bit of comic relief in the midst of all of the accusations, accusations that are flying around the identity of Jesus. Alright, so let's pick back up again in verse number 8. Therefore his neighbors, therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he's like him. He kept saying, No, I am the one. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes open? And he said, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away, I washed, and I received sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought the Pharisees, they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the it was the Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied the clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. And they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him and that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received a sight and questioned them saying, Is this your son who was born blind? Then how does he see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. And the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So a second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Do you? They reviled him and said, 
You are his disciple. But we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing. That you do not know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and you were teaching us. So they put him out. After uh, Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Well, what a story, and what an exchange. So in the context of Jesus spitting on the ground and making a mud ball and smearing it in a man's eyes, I want us to consider this subject this morning. Seeing clearly in a muddy situation. Because you know, sometimes life just isn't clear. Sometimes we don't have pat answers for everything. As a matter of fact, there are some things I think that we're just not intended to know and we won't know until we get to glory. But I do believe that there are some principles uh, buried within the context of this story that will help us tomorrow, help us the next day, and will help us today be able to make sense sometime of some of the muddy and cloudy situations that we encounter just in the course of life. So how is it that we can see more clearly in a muddy situation? This story gives us several indications, and I want to point out to you at least three of them today on our journey through it. Here we go. How is it? Number one, we can see more clearly when we embrace the general purpose of life. The general purpose of life. I want you to see this. Notice what it is that Jesus says is the purpose, not just, don't, don't read this as just the purpose of this blindness. But read this as the general purpose of life. The disciples had a specific question for him when they saw this blind man. They said, Lord, who is it that sinned? Hey, can I just be honest with you? Sometimes a cause and effect mentality gets you nowhere. Sometimes that circular reasoning that just keeps us chasing our tail. You see, the Pharisees had developed a very elaborate system of cause and effect, and they attributed most of these types of ailments to sin. They even said that a baby could sin in utero. And that baby in life could be punished for the sins that he or she committed in utero. It was either that or the parents. One of them, because this stuff don't just happen at random, is the thinking that predominated in that day. And so they asked Jesus, Rabbi, what is it that caused this horrific fate to befall this man? And Jesus said, it wasn't anything that you were thinking. It's that the works of God, look what he says here in verse number 3, it is neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was that the works of God may, dis may be displayed in him. Pastor Richie, are you telling me that we have a God that will cause somebody to be born blind just so he can miraculously open their eyes to make himself look good? That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Jesus is saying. 
Jesus is giving us here an overarching statement about the general purpose of life. It doesn't matter whether you have two good eyes or whether you have two bad eyes. It don't matter whether you have two strong legs or whether you have two incapacitated legs. The purpose of human life is the same one and for all, no matter what physical condition we find ourselves in. And the purpose of human life is that here's your purpose. That the works of God might be displayed in you. So here we go. Purpose number one is to have God's work displayed in us. You know, here's, here's a good way to look at your life. You can look at your life as, as, as a blank canvas upon which God can and desires to paint an astounding masterpiece. You can look at your life as a blank sheet of paper upon which... God wants to write an amazing piece of poetry. As a matter of fact, Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 says this. says, for we are His workmanship. His workmanship. The word behind workmanship in the original language is the word poema. You know what it is. You can make the connection just by hearing it. Literally it is, we are God's poem. God desires to write upon your piece of paper. God desires to paint on your blank canvas and make you a masterpiece that will absolutely astound all of those who see you. Oh, you come that way. Because make no mistake about it, you are created in God's image. So every living, being, breathing person created in God's image has the capacity to have the amazing, astounding works of God displayed in his or her life. That's all there is to it. I was called this past week, I've got to travel to the east coast of Florida on Saturday and do a funeral for one of the most amazing and influential man, men that I've ever encountered in life. And if anybody ever exemplified what it means to submit your life to God and let God fill your page with poetry and fill your canvas with the marvelous strokes of the Master, it was this man. I'm telling you, it's amazing to me what God made of this man. I mean, this guy, he was an air traffic controller. He was a pilot. He was a sea captain. He was a master carpenter. He was a welder. He was everything that you can possibly imagine. There was nothing this guy couldn't do. As a matter of fact, here's what, here's what we would do if we had a project that just required a little bit more oomph than what you can normally get. We would go to this man and we'd say, Bob, I just don't think it can be done. I think it's impossible to do what we're trying to do here. And so that was like waving a red flag in front of a bull. He'd make it happen. He'd get it done. It's amazing. Out of everything on his pedigree, though, let me tell you why he was what he was. Because one day, Jesus found that dude and made an amazing deposit in his life, saved him, filled him with God's Spirit, and I don't know if I've never known a more nonsensical believer who was committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and giving other folk the opportunity to have the same thing done to them than he was. God's work displayed in his life. But number two, not only is God's general purpose for your life, hey, can I ask you, how are you doing there? 
Let me just dig around a little bit. I can tell when folk get silent that I'm getting close to something. I mean, how are you doing? I mean, the people of God, we ought to be walking billboards as to the masterpiece that God can make out of a piece of trash. I mean, let's be honest. He found us in the dumpster of life. It doesn't matter what social stratum you came from. You could be been a down and outer. You could be an up and outer. It don't matter. If you're without Christ, listen, you're in the dregs. And he found you there. He found me there. And what is he made out of it? What is he displaying to the world? We ought not have to say anything for folk to know God's doing something in our world. Huh? Number next, not only is the general purpose of life to have God's work displayed in us, but number two is to have God's work done by us. Look what Jesus says. Hey, if he, if he does his work in you, then it's, it's, a, it's a short step then to have his work done by you. Because that's just the natural progression. Notice what it is that Jesus said. Immediately after answering this question about the general purpose of life, Jesus just kind of ignores their question and says this, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. It's God's general purpose for your life. Number one, God's work be displayed in you. Number two, that God's work be done by you. See, here's what the disciples wanted to do. The disciples wanted to sit around and speculate all day as to the reason why this man was born blind. And can I say to you that this text proves that Jesus has more respect for hard work than he does for speculation. And yet I know some folks, I've, I've got some preacher friends that all they want to do is sit around and speculate all day. I mean, they don't sit around and ponder things like, did Adam have a belly button? My goodness, what in the world? Ever since Heather and I have, you know, kind of been in the mission mobilization business, we have been, there's no telling how many churches we've, we've spoke in, we've done seminars and conferences, and we've mobilized and plugged into the front line of the mission field. But I want to tell you, I, I've got several, several buddies that, that we have went and, and, and tried to mobilize their churches six and seven years ago, and they've not done anything since. And when I talked to them, one of them told me that day, he said, yes, yeah, it said, we're just trying to figure out how missions fits into our theology. I said, what? He said, yeah, we just ain't, we, we don't have it all figured out yet. We're trying to see how this mission model squares with the confession of 1689. I said, what in the world are you? Here's, here's the deal. Here's what I say about them. These guys have paralysis by theological analysis. They can't do anything because they're trying to figure out and cross every T and dot every I theologically before they do anything. And can I say to you that Jesus says, get to work. Stop speculating and get to work. Do what you know you're supposed to be doing. And sometimes in the course of doing what you know you're supposed to be doing, you get light as to those things that you were just speculating about before. You know what I'm saying? Now get this. I want you to mark this down. Jesus talked about purpose in life here. But don't miss this. Jesus is the key to purpose in life. Stop and think with me. This blind man would have never had the work of God displayed in his life had he not had an encounter with Jesus Christ. There is no other way for the 
God-given potential which He infuses in every human being to be drawn out of your life apart from Jesus Christ. Are you with me? It just can't happen. He is the one who draws it out. He's the one that brings God's purpose to fruition. This blind man would have sat there until he died a hundred deaths had he not had an encounter with Jesus. And when he had an encounter with Jesus, everything changed. And can I say it's the same way for us today? You can't realize God's purpose. No matter what you do in life, no matter what you become, you will miss the target if you never have a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. It's the only way for divine purpose to be brought out of your life. Notice what else the Bible says here as we think about seeing clearly in this muddy situation. Number one, we can see clearly when we embrace the general purpose of life. Man, I hope you leave here today with a resolve to have God write on your blank sheet of paper and draw on your blank canvas. Maybe he needs to do some erasing before he does some writing. Well, number next, we can also see clearly when we have the right perspective of life. Now, I want you to see the different philosophies and perspective, perspectives of life that different folk had of this blind man. I think, number one, we can say that to the disciples, this blind man was nothing more than a problem to be pondered. They're like some of my preacher friends and some of my theological buddies. You just want to sit around and ponder the problem all day, but not do anything about it in the end. They want to ask Jesus, and they're wanting philosophical answers, and they want to ask, have this question answered and that question answered. And can I say to you, I don't know why good things happen, bad things happen to good people. I don't know why some folk are born with some conditions and others are not. I have a good suspicion it just has to do with the effects of sin and this good creation that God spoke into existence. But can I say, hey, whatever hand you've been dealt, you've still got a general purpose. And whatever hand you've been dealt, you still have the potential of God displaying His works in you. You still have the potential of doing God's work, having God's work done by you. It's amazing to me that some, some of the people that have had the most severe challenges in life have accomplished the most in the kingdom of God. Man, can I just remind you of some songwriters like Fanny Crosby who never saw the light of day in her life. But yet she had more spiritual vision than probably every one of us in this room. And here this guy, the same way, born blind, a little bit of spiritual insight. Notice what it is that the Bible says. To the disciples, this guy was nothing more than a problem to be pondered. The Bible also says to the Pharisees, he was nothing more than a tool to be exploited. They just wanted to use him. Let's bring him in. Let's use him for our purposes. Have you ever, been, you ever felt like somebody was doing that to you? You ever felt like somebody just using you for what they could get out of you? Well, that's kind of the perspective of life. Everybody was just a tool to be used for my own purposes and for whatever I needed, just to use somebody. And let me tell you where this comes. This is, this is a philosophy known as seeing man as a machine. And can I say where we see this most today in modern society? Where does the, the philosophy or the perspective of man as machine come? It comes at the point of the economy and careers and jobs and professions. 
Let me tell you why you ought not be ultimately loyal to your job. Let me tell you why some folk that have a tendency to take overtime every time rather than doing what God wants them to do. You know what I'm saying? Let me tell you why you ought not do that. Because this is how your employer sees you as a tool to be exploited, as a machine to be used for the company's benefit. Hey, if you don't believe it, just go ahead and get hurt. See how long they keep you on a payroll. If you can't perform, if you can't do what they hired you to do, you're gone. Now look, I'm not decrying that because business has, you know, there's a couple of things you got to do. You got to stay in the, in, in, in the black, number one, so you can't have a bunch of deadheads on your payroll. I understand that. I'm not saying that the system's broken. I'm just saying that your ultimate loyalty ought not be to somebody who views your life like that. Your ultimate loyalty ought to be somebody who has a different perspective of your life. And I'm going to show you what that is in just a minute. All right, number next, to the disciples, he was a problem to be pondered. To the Pharisees, he was a tool to be exploited. To his parents, he was a liability to be avoided. How come they didn't want to speak for him? Because they were afraid of the Pharisees and the Jews. They knew if they testified as to what happened to him, they would be put out of the synagogue. So what did they say? They said, he is of age, you ask him. They put all the onus on him. My goodness. You ever been sold out by your own flesh and blood? You ever had your back turned on you by family? Well, that's what happened here. And they saw him as a liability to be avoided. And I want, can, can I just brag on y'all for a little bit? About... See, it's normally the other way, ain't it, Jerry? Normally it's time saying, can I skin y'all's hide for a minute? <laughs> so Jerry gets the other question. He won't take advantage of that. Yeah, let me brag on Grace Church for a minute. Let me tell you why I am where I am today. Being a part of Grace Church. It's about four years ago, Heather and I were trying to transition back here from the mission field. And there was nobody that wanted us. We were a liability to be avoided by every church that we tried to affiliate with. I had all the strikes against me. I was a missionary, so they thought I was going to be trying to get in their pocketbook all the time. I was a former pastor, so they thought I was going to be trying to usurp the pulpit. I was a professor at the Baptist College of Florida, so they thought I was going to be evaluating their theology and their homiletics every Sunday. Hey, I I'm telling you, and nobody, you can ask my wife, who everybody normally loves, she was a liability to be avoided because of her affiliation with me. <laughs> nobody wanted to have anything to do with us. We were considering just packing up and going and burying ourselves back in the jungles of northeast Brazil and never coming out again. It was so bad for us. And then one day somebody said, Hey, Dr. Allen, won't you come to Grace Church? I said, well, what is Grace Church and where is it? So where's the church plant in Bonifay? I said, eh, I don't know if I want to do that. Oh, but Dr. Allen, you need to come. And they just stayed on me and stayed on me. Watch this. I walked in the door of that little one-room building right down here on Waukesha Street one day. I turned the doorknob and I walked in. I closed the door behind me. And when I turned around, if I'm lying, I'm dying. 
there was about 25 to 30 folk right there behind me calling me by name before the door got shut. Dr. Allen, what are you doing here? Dr. Allen, so good to see you. We're glad you're at Grace. And in that one moment, Heather and I both felt like, Dear God, we have finally found somebody that's willing to accept us as who we are and let us be a part. That's all we wanted to do was be a part. We didn't want to get in nobody's pocketbook. We didn't want to usurp nobody's pulpit. We didn't want to evaluate nobody's theology. We just needed a community of faith to be in, somebody that viewed us not as a tool to be exploited, not as a liability to be avoided, but just somebody that would come around us and say, Man, we want to be your buddy. And that's why I'm at Grace Church today. Heather and I would probably be buried somewhere in the jungle of Brazil today eating hog eyeballs as we speak. <laughs> Thank you for having a different perspective. Hey, Grace, listen. Listen to me. When I was a young preacher, I used to put the emphasis on all the wrong things. Hey, this is, you're getting all this free. This, I didn't even plan this. I used to put the emphasis on all the wrong things. I used to be a Pharisee, Dr. John. And it was all about theology. It was all about analyzing. It was all about philosophy. It was all about this, that, and the other thing. Can I tell you what it is when you boil it all down? It's about loving people. And Grace Church, hear me, there are folk in Bonifay, Florida who need some loving. And I'm telling you, when we encounter them out there, if we'll let God's work be displayed in us and be done by us, they'll experience the love of God. When they walk in this place, if we are who we say we are, we'll embrace them immediately. Not look at them as a liability to be avoided or a tool to be exploited or a problem to be pondered. We'll look at them like Jesus looked at them. And I'll tell you something, that communicates louder than any sermon you'll ever hear this old boy preach. Notice what else. Here's what it all comes down to, to his parents. He was a liability to be avoided. But here's, here, Grace Church, here's our model. To Jesus, he was a person worth redeeming. Now, I want you to stop and think about this with me for a little while. The more I read the Gospels, the more I realize that Jesus had to absolutely blindfold himself and handcuff himself in order to be crucified he was the son of God man can't kill God he had to surrender himself purposely purposefully and willingly in order to fulfill God's purpose being our sacrifice on Calvary's cross here's one way he did it right here with this guy it was on the Sabbath can I say to you Jesus didn't break the Sabbath he just broke the traditions that man had built around the Sabbath one of the traditions was you can't spit on the Sabbath. Because if you spit, when your spit hits the ground, it's going to turn the dirt and the soil a little bit, and that's considered plowing. So you can't even spit. On. Now, would somebody show me that in the Bible? Where's that in the Bible? You know, Jesus is a master at making hamburgers out of your sacred cows. He'll do it. He'll grind them up right in front of you while you're there because he don't want you to be loyalty to, to, loyal to anything other than God's Word, both written and incarnate. And sometimes we've got so much stuff that we pile on top of it that we think's in the Bible that's not. And he's a master at making hamburger out of those sacred cows. Now get this. That man had been born blind, no telling how old he was, 
But ever since day one, he was blind. Jesus passes by and sees him. Missed the Sabbath? No problem. I don't want to be an offense to anybody. I don't want to cause any struggles or any turmoil with Pharisees. I'll just come back tomorrow. Tomorrow's Sunday. I'll just come back and heal him tomorrow. And it's not what he did, is it? He went right over to that man and noticed. He never spoke a word to the man. It's almost while he's giving this lecture to his disciples about being the light of the world, he's on the ground spitting and making mud balls. You see, this guy and the guy in John chapter 5 were the trigger mechanism that just put the Pharisees over the edge that set everything in motion to put Jesus on the cross. Jesus looked at this man and he said, Sir, you are worth dying for. You are worth redeeming. You are an individual made in the image of God. You need to be set free. I want the works of God to be displayed in your life. I want the works of God to be done by you. And he went and knelt down in front of this guy and spit on the ground and made a gigantic spitball out of mud. Started rubbing it on this guy's eyes. Now watch this. There's some stuff to be said about this mud. So let's talk about the mud for a little while, can we? This mud that Jesus made. First thing is this. The mud would have been and is offensive to healthy people. Stop and think about it. Everybody in here who has good sight, if somebody came up to you, hopped a loogie on the ground, <laughs> rubbed it in some South Alabama red clay, and started coming at you, what you going to do? Huh? That's exactly what you're going to do. You don't want anybody spitting on your face. You don't want anybody making a mud ball out of spit. I mean, you hock a loogie on my face, you'll probably get one hock right back. You know what I'm saying? Gosh, don't do that. I can remember our oldest son, my wife. All mothers, all mothers do this. All mothers do it. You know what I'm going to say. So I'm not, I'm not picking on any of them. It's just a mother thing. That's right. We're getting ready to go to church one morning. Got my son in the back seat. And my wife turns around and says, Son, look at your face. You didn't even wash your face. Richie, why didn't you wash his face? We go into church. About that time she licks, you know, all of them. Look like Brett Favre licking before he throws a pass. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> she licked and you could just see the spit glistening on her hands. And she took that thing and she reached over in the back seat and he was getting out of the way like this and he was hollering, Daddy! Daddy! And she was just relentless. She went and she just wiped all over his face with spit. <laughs> Next thing I know, <laughs> our five-year-old son took his hand and went spinning it like that and then just rubbed it right all over her makeup. And she looked at me and said, oh, Do something to your son! I said, You deserved every bit of it, baby. <laughs> Turnabout's fair play, huh? <laughs> you don't want anybody spitting on your face. What am I saying? I'm saying that this mud is offensive to the healthy. Now here's the principle. Are you with me, Will? What is the principle? That is the principle of the cross. Because the Bible says that the cross is an offense. Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. First Peter talks about how offensive he is to people who don't think they need a Savior. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus talks about how he is offensive 
to those who think they are spiritually whole and spiritually clean. To a spiritually clean person, what is this thing about the blood of a man who died on a cross being applied to my life to make me clean? That is offensive. So Jesus is teaching something here in this mud. My Lord, get me to the place what Peter said when he washed his feet. He said, Lord, if that be the case, then you wash my whole body, not just my feet only. Well, the mud is offensive to the healthy, but here's the second thing. Mud gives a sense of heaviness. I mean, here he's got, he made a mud ball, and now he takes this mud and he applies it over the man's eyes. And as that mud begins to dry and crack, you know, it just ha makes you feel, you're consciously aware that you've got weight on your eyelids. It gave a sense of heaviness to this man's face. He knew that something had been done, didn't know what it was, but he knew that there was something heavy on his face. What is that? That is the principle of conviction. The principle of conviction. How many times have you felt the weight of your own sin? The heaviness on your shoulders. You know, I've, I've put things on my own shoulders that the Lord didn't put there. And I've been at the place in my life before where I didn't feel like I could put one foot in front of the other. The oppression and the weight was so heavy on me. There have been times I've been in sin when, man, it's just been like something squeezing my chest, bearing down. And that's conviction from the Lord. The mud gave a sense of heaviness. It's the principle of conviction. And then finally... The removal of the mud. By the way, check this out. The one who was sent, sent him to a pool that was called sent. You think he's trying to tell us anything here? Hey, when the sent one removes the mud, it brings healing. See, the man didn't know he could see until he got that heaviness off of him. Can I say to you, there are people here today that don't know that you can fly. Because you're so weighted down. You've got the heaviness on you. And it's pushing you down and keeping you from being what God wants you to be. Keeping you from doing what God wants you to do. Can I say, wash it off. That's the principle of conversion. We have the principle of the cross. You know what the first thing Jesus does to those who are living outside of His purpose and not having the purpose of God displayed and fulfilled in their life? first thing he does is shows them the cure and that's the cross it's either welcomed or it's an offense the next thing that happens is he shows you your need for the cross that's the Holy Spirit conviction putting the weight upon you feeling like you can't do anything else man I can remember when I was saved so many years ago I felt like if I didn't respond in faith today my chest was going to explode you ever been there that's the principle of conviction. First thing he does, he shows us the cross. Second thing he does, he shows us our need by this weight of conviction. And then finally, the removal. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing 
but the blood of Jesus, that's when conversion takes place. That's when all of a sudden your spiritual eyes are opened. Nicodemus says, I tell you the truth, no one can even see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. The reason so many people don't see the need, can't see the significance of what believers see as ultimately important is because they've never been born again. Well, if we can see clearly in a muddy situation, number one, when we embrace the general purpose of life, number two, we can see clearly in a muddy situation we have the right perspective of life. And then number three, finally, we can see more clearly when we make continual progress from darkness to light. Let me show you this and I'll be done. Hey, man, salvation is just like anything else. It's a journey. There's a time when you begin. That's called being saved, being born again. That's the starting point. But what we've got to track is how far we've come since that day. Are we making any progress? Well, check out this. This, this may not be a direct analogy because maybe there was a time later on when this guy was saved, but nonetheless, notice the progress that's made here. Uh, notice how this man referred to Jesus. Notice how his eyes are being opened, not just physically, but his spiritual eyes are being opened as to the identity of Jesus. You see, he's going from darkness to light progressively. Notice the references here. Number one, when they ask him, who is this man? In verse number 11, you may want to underline it. Notice what he said. He answered, the man who is called Jesus. You see where he started? That's all he knew. But he said, the man who is called Jesus. Then look with me in verse number 17. Notice how his understanding is developing. He says in verse number 17, he is a prophet. Do you see how there's progress being made in his understanding? Now look with me in verse number 27. He asked the Pharisees, tongue-in-cheek, why are y'all asking so many questions? Y'all want to become his disciple too? And the implication is that he himself is a disciple. So now he says that Jesus is one to be followed. To be followed. That's what a disciple is. He is a follower. So he says, now he's a follower. So you see, or, or he's worthy of being followed. So you see the progression. Now check out with me in verse number 33, after this ignorant and unlearned man puts together a wonderful logical argument about the identity of Jesus and makes the Pharisees mad and they resort to what most people do when you offend them. He resorted to calling him names. The name calling. He said, you were born entirely in sin and you're teaching us we're the righteous ones, we're the educated ones, we're the religious ones. And the man had him back in a corner spiritually. So look what he says here. In verse number 33, if this man were not from God, in verse 33 the implication is he is from God. You see the progression? And then look finally as Jesus finds him in verse number 38. Lord, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Ultimately, on this progression from Darkness to light, he was at the feet of Jesus worshiping, saying, You are God, you are worthy of my worship. Now, here's the principle. Got a couple principles and I'm done. Maybe as we respond to the light that God has already given us, if you respond to that light positively, 
God gives you more light. And you continue the journey. You continue to make progress. But watch this. God gives you light today, and you thumb your nose at it, there's no more light. You see, it's just like baseball. You don't get to third base legally without touching first and second. Can't do that. Here's what we got to do. Respond to the light that God gives us today. Then He'll give you more light. Then you continue your journey of progress. That's discipleship. That's spiritual maturity. That's sanctification. Call it whatever you want to. But here's the principle. Maybe our capacity to understand is enlarged as we respond correctly to the light that God's already given us. So here's what I say to my brethren who sit around and speculate all day about unanswerable questions. If you begin to respond to the light that you know God has already given you, maybe you'd arrive at a point one day where you understand a little more clearly some of the things that you're speculating about in the darkness today. Hey, God may not answer the question that you want Him to answer, but God gives you the answers that He wants you to have for the most pressing problem in your life today. Respond to that light, and God gives more light. Receive this, and God enlarges your capacity to receive more. So hey, let me ask you, how are you doing today in your spiritual journey? Are you flat-footed? Have you come to a stop? Maybe it's because you didn't respond to the last thing God said last week, last month, maybe a year ago. What is it that God said that ran you off? Go back and pick that up. Do business with God and watch glorious light break forth in your life again. Hey, we may not have all the answers, but at the same time, it's not God's will that His children muddle around as blind beggars through life. Seeing clearly in a muddy situation. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, we know that life gets sticky. We know that it gets confusing. We know that it gives us hard blows. And there's no way we'll ever navigate ourselves through it by simply philosophical discussion and speculation. The only way we're going to navigate through it is by being obedient to you. So I pray for those who are here today that kind of find themselves in a muddy situation. And Lord, I pray this day that you have given them light and I pray this day they'll respond to that light so that more light can be made available. Lord, I pray for that one who's here today that's just under the heaviness of conviction. I pray today they'll hear you say, go to the pool of Siloam. I pray they'll hear you say, apply the blood of Christ by faith. God, I pray for those who are here today that you've been speaking to about doing your work your work's been displayed in their life and now it's time for them to start doing the work because night's coming when no man can work I pray for those whom you're speaking to about affiliating with the local church and you've led them to grace you've spoken to them about grace may today be the day of obedience God no matter what it is you've said 
we do not want to muddle around in darkness this week. Help us in faith respond to your light. And may the light of the world illumine our past this week for your honor and glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Dr. John's up here on the front row. I'll be right up here. If God said something to you today, you need to respond to the light he's given. Don't take that lightly in Jesus' name. Be obedient.